Hi, welcome to Back to Excited, episode 168. My name is Arvin. Joining me as always, my colleague from PensionPlanPuppets.com. It's Acting the Fooleman. Hi, everybody. How are you doing, Fooleman? Not bad. You? I'm doing well. Um, we have a fun podcast for you today. Well, hopefully fun. Um, <laughs> we're, we're, people tend to like the, the segments where we like rant a little bit, probably because we're generally pretty even-keeled and probably too um measured in some circumstances we could probably stand to get out on a limb a little bit more mm-hmm. um now we're taking the joke of like why don't they make the whole airplane out of the black box more literally we're, we're making the whole podcast out of the rant section today yeah so we have a bunch of topics that have just been annoying us to varying degrees recently some of these are like longer form some of these are just like very one note mm-hmm. um but we're just going to talk about them and we're just going to um feed into you know, each other's worst tendencies to rant and be negative in a way that is definitely not indicative of, you know, society's larger problem in, in discourse and polarization and, and how everything must be the best or the worst. Mm-hmm. Um, it has no relevance to that. We're just going to yell it a bit. Mm-hmm. And so, <laughs> so yeah. let's get so, rolling. Again. Uh, so our first one was no cheering in the press box. You may have heard of this. This is a common phrase in sports journalism where it basically says, you should have a certain amount of journalistic detachment if you're going to report on a sports franchise. I have to say, sometimes in sports, you know, people say it's not that serious. Don't worry about it. You know, this is not Woodward and Bernstein here. It's just people reporting on a children's game. At the same time, if you're going to coherently report on what a team is doing, whether its decisions are good or bad, the play is good or bad, you do need a certain amount of distance. And... There are certain reporters who just do not bother with that at all. Like, I'm thinking of Jack Todd, who identifies himself a lot with the Habs franchise that he supposedly reports on. But more to the point, he just hates the Leafs in a really personal way. And I'm like, that's fine. Except you do have to be able to report on hockey. And, you know, seeing red every time you see blue and white is kind of unhinged. Um, beyond a certain point, it ruins your impartiality. Don't do that. That's just like really basic professionalism. Yeah. So, I mean, I think to a large extent, this idea of no cheering in the press box has eroded a little bit over the past two decades. And I think like the mm-hmm. writing of people like Bill Simmons, for example, have, have done a lot for that, right? Where he popularized in a lot of ways, the idea of the fanalist, right? And we see on, on Twitter, a lot of uh, very well-respected and, I think, strong analysts do not hide their allegiances to teams that are able to maintain objectivity. Don Lutherfin is a Leafs fan. Uh, Michael McCurdy, for example, mm-hmm. is a Sens fan. Right? And, and those are just two that come to mind you know, immediately, but there are, there are many others who, who mm-hmm. have fandoms but can objectively analyze around them. Um, the issue arises when it becomes, like, I guess, slightly too much it, or when, when it starts eroding your ability to as you said to to analyze and i mean also like sorry i'm kind of jumping back and forth we, we cannot say oh you can't be a fan and analyze a team given the yeah. nature of this podcast like, we're not. not hiding that we're leaf fans mm-hmm. right we hope that we can at least be objective when we, when we analyze them and other teams um or close to it but it, it becomes an issue when everything gets read through the lens of said fandom mm-hmm. and i feel like i noticed this a lot when it comes to like I don't know press conferences and stuff like that, there's whenever whenever a team has a press conference, there'll be like some 
breathless beat reporter who's like reporting as if you know this for the person who is said very anodyne things to the media has just successfully negotiated you know a hostage rescue <laughs> right it's like oh my god he said they got to get pucks deep what a leader right it's it's just it's it can be sometimes a little too much and then at times like the the, the standing for for teams on twitter or for organizations on Twitter can be a little much. I, I find it kind of grating at times um, to always have mm. to, to see that. So, yeah, I don't know if I have a ton more to say, but just like, yeah, don't do not do that. I will say, and, you know, I single out Jack Todd because I think he really is just like blatantly partisan in a mm-hmm. way that's kind of weird when you're a journalist who supposedly should be asking questions and stuff like that. But the more common bias, I think, in sports reporting is towards your sources. You know, you have people that you're in touch with. They tell you things. That's part of your value as a reporter is that you get these kind of quotes. And so your worldview, unless you're pretty scrupulous about your independence, will tend to reflect theirs. The Edmonton media is something that we've complained about a lot on this podcast. And I think a huge factor is that they are sourced within the organization in terms of management. It's really clear that Oilers management and ownership, I'm going to guess Bob Nicholson, have the ear of Mark Spector and Jim Matheson and Kurt Levins and all of those other reporters. And as a result, you get the remarkably bad reporting that we've seen where no one can say the emperor has no clothes in terms of ownership and upper management in Edmonton. And they have had 15 years of running various scoring wingers out of town. Um, I think beyond a certain point, it does actually make you worse if you can't detach yourself from those perspectives you're getting. Uh, and again, obviously, we're not throwing any stones on Dallas stuff, but once you become a, a genuine journalist when you're writing for a paper, as we are not, uh, I do think that you should at least draw something of a line. <laughs> so, yeah, it's just something that stands out to me a, a whole lot. Um, this is something that you took notes on last night, our next topic. Yes, yeah, so, so the next one is, is probably, will be a little bit longer. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just... I've I've been watching hockey a lot more recently with, with newer fans or people who aren't as into hockey as I am or as, as Fullman as you are or as basically anyone who listens to this podcast is. Mm. And I think tr- seeing things more from their perspective has made me realize a couple things. Um, and this is, I can speak most confidently with Canadian broadcasts in this respect because the, the times we have watched American broadcasts, they're actually slightly better in this regard probably because they know their their audience is potentially less familiar with the game. Mm-hmm. Um, it is incredibly... These broadcasts are incredibly beginner-unfriendly. Mm-hmm. And I'd say a big chunk of that is they don't really explain anything. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean things like rules, like offside and icing. Uh, when you think about it, explaining ice, explaining hybrid icing is actually kind of confusing. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you just have to do it in words. I've had to do that a few times recently. It's, it's difficult. I'm not expecting broadcasts to do that, especially not uh, Hockey Night in Canada, for example. Right? Mm-hmm. But they explain so little of how the game works, about what teams are doing well, about what teams are doing poorly. And this is not a new criticism, but I think it's been more clear to me exactly how much of the content that is said on hockey broadcast is just there to take up space Mm -hmm. 
Right. Um, so an example from last night, when they were introducing Peter Mrazek, the, the broadcaster says something like, uh, something to the effect of, you know, not, not in these exact words, but the idea is Peter Mrazek has had X number of games in his against Vancouver or in Rogers Arena go to overtime in his last Y appearances there. Mm-hmm. And they, that, that's a stat. And it's like, okay, cool. That is, that's fucking useless. Well, I don't give a shit about that. Peter, Peter Mrazek's played in the Eastern Conference his whole life. <laughs> these, these, these games against Vancouver span years. Mm-hmm. And they don't even tell me how he played. They just say that he went to overtime. Mm-hmm. Right? And I'm not saying, like, every single piece of information on broadcast has to be, like, useful or interesting or, thing, or like, um, you know, tells you about the game. But so many are just like that, where it feels like the only appropriate response is, okay. Yeah. Neat, I guess. Maybe that'll continue and, or not. Who knows? Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't actually tell you anything about the game, about the players, about who is good, right? It, so it would. I feel like so. It it would be better for a lot of newer fans and a lot of older fans if they explained things more. Mm-hmm. And I will give some credit here, or, or at least I'll make a, a caveat here. Hockey is a hard sport to do this in. Yeah, because it is—it's arguably the most continuous of sports of North American major sports. Um, there are very few breaks in the action. When there are breaks in the action, there's normally been like a minute or two of play before. You can't possibly break down every single kind of relevant thing that happened there. So, you know, broadcasts revert to just explaining maybe the most important chance, the most important shot, but they can only do that in like five seconds. Mm-hmm. So there's not enough time to really say, okay, this is why this is happening, and and yada yada yada. So they resort to cliche. I recognize that it's harder in hockey than it is in football where you have a 30 second break effectively between every single play so you can get a somewhat detailed replay of every play between plays um that said i think a whole lot more could be done just by you know not spending so much time on dumb stats and by dumb stats i mean things like players history against x team spanning the last five years Mm -hmm. for for the longest time i'm just like ranting now but for the longest time um Every single time the Leafs played Washington, they'd be like, you know, Alex Ovechkin has scored the most points in uh, against the Leafs of like almost any team in his career mm-hmm. uh, by points per game or something like that. It's like, well, of course, we've been dog shit for <laughs> as long as he's been in the league until like the last three years. Yeah. Right? Like, that's not telling me anything. Mm-hmm. Right? It's, 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 it's stupid. Um, so, like, the, the standard stats that I see that effectively tell someone very little or nothing about the game is... Um, Okay, power play home road splits. Mm -hmm. It's never explained, and this was an actual question uh, posed to me by a friend, which is like, why do they talk about power play home road splits? It seems like it's the same power play in both situations. Yes, I agree. (laughs) There's there's very little sense of what changes when uh, a power play goes on the road versus staying at home. As far as I can tell, not that much. Well, you have to remember that at home, you get the guy who tells you when to shoot on the power play, which is obviously very helpful. (laughs) Yeah. So without that on the road, you're a bit bereft. Yeah. I take it back. I take it back. (laughs) Um, The other thing, stats by period. Now, Mm. this I could actually sort of see as important, but they never explain why it could be important because the reason you could expect um, the first period to be different from the second period to be different from the third period is that the second period has a long change which there is some evidence that that increases offense. Mm-hmm. And the third period is more likely to be score effects. Those teams are more desperate. But that's never mentioned on a broadcast. Mm-hmm. They just say the Leafs lead the league in first period goals but are only seventh in second period goals. Mm-hmm. And there's no 
possible explanation that they give as to why. And the actual answer is it's probably mostly randomness. Mm. Because it just like goals are a noisy stat generally. But there's never any explanation as to why. They just present it there and leave the audience to understand what that means. That's something that I've thought about about offensive zone time, which has been showing up on broadcast with a little clock counter. And which is something useful. Except they just put it up in terms of total time in the game. So it maps often kind of neatly to who has had power plays. And that's the little thing that would be easier to fix or easier to clarify for people. But instead you just put it up and it's like, I feel like there really is a little gap there where the analysis is just not happening to explain to people what's going on there. I do also think that there's a real weakness in hockey in terms of talking about tactics, like actual gameplay. And to be clear, look, Arvin and I are mostly stats-based. We know a little bit about this stuff. We're not on a level of any kind of uh, professional hockey coach. Um, and so that analysis would be really useful to lots of people, including me, for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep, yeah, uh, 100% agreed on that. And so I, I remember thinking this as a kid, and, you know, I grew up watching hockey in the 1990s where it was dominated by the neutral zone trap. You heard a lot about this and everyone kind of understood that it was making the game boring. And I remember when I was about, I don't know, six or something, I started noticing, I was like, oh man, everyone's talking about the trap. And I waited in vain for a long time on a broadcast for someone to explain what the neutral zone trap was. Mm -hmm. I just remember, I kept thinking, I was like, oh, I wonder what that involves. And it's not that complicated. You have one four-checker who steers um, the puck carrier towards the wingers of the boards. It works better if you can clutch and grab and if there's a two-line pass rule, but the basic idea is the same. But there was almost none of that. And I think that that's a recurring thing in terms of hockey, is it's so fluid, you get very little explanation of what are they trying to do and how does it work. The most you get is after goals, there's usually some sort of autopsy for whose fault it was. And everyone does that. You know, hockey is a game that focuses on defensive mistakes. But yeah, it's well, just, and yeah. It's, Sorry, go ahead. With goals in particular, it's like a lot of, there's generally very little communication of the fact that like, I don't know, every single shot, every single place, he's someone plays sub, somewhat abo- suboptimally, or at least mm-hmm. a defender plays somewhat suboptimally, because in a perfect world, if you're playing a defense, or if you're playing defense, rather, you don't give up a shot, period. Mm-hmm. There's no probability of a goal against, right? So I always, that's another thing, like, there'll, there'll, there'll be this shot that is like, you know, just a, a, a screened, a screen point shot goes in, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, they'll focus on a board battle one five seconds prior. Mm-hmm. And they'll say, that, that was a key board battle there. It's like, yes, it was in a sense, but that happens 300 times a game. Mm-hmm. A team will win a board battle and there'll be like, you know, a shot or event, like something like that, you mm-hmm. know? And sometimes that shot will go in. And there's very, never any communication of the fact that like, yeah, that was, that was an important board battle, but that board battle was not any more important at the time than any other board battle. Mm-hmm. Right? It, it, it's, it's another thing where like, there's this, there's very much a focus on like, Okay, something happened. Let's find the nearest proximate cause and say that's the issue. Mm-hmm. Right? And this is also why like, defenders get scapegoated at times. Yeah. As we're seeing with like, Justin Hall and Jake Muzzin, granted, as we've talked about previously, they haven't been that great this year, but like, mm-hmm. you know, they're, they're also probably getting a bit unfairly maligned for plays that happen to everyone but are ending up in the back of the net when they're on the ice. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so, so you look at that, and you do wish that there were more of an effort to make the game go here. And I'm not saying higher level strategy all the time here. But I'm saying you could give an answer to what is going on tactically, I think, a lot of times in 30 seconds, at least at a bird's eye level. And I think that would add a lot to the broadcast. Um, you know, Ray Ferraro does a bit of this stuff and he notices trends that people like. Mm -hmm. Even then, he's it's not like he's ever getting really hard on the X's and O's. He's just yeah. finding useful things to say. I'd say part of what makes him a very good commentator is the fact that he can explain what teams are trying to do in a way that is relatively clear to someone in plain English. Mm -hmm. He doesn't use a lot of jargon. Exactly. Which I like. Yeah, and, and you know, there's... I think this sometimes does reflect the insular nature of hockey. Um, you know, there are some people who aren't especially keen on explaining everything and who are sort of proud to be on the inside of the club. And I, I'm not saying that this is the psychology of commentators or anything, but I'm saying... I honestly feel like sometimes in hockey it's almost treated as, like, a little embarrassing to over-explain what's going on to Canadians or something like that. Like, yeah, there's I... just a focus on, yeah, on momentum and on grit and on determination and stuff. And it's just sort of assumed that either we all know all of the tactical X's and O's and stuff like that, or that they're less important. And I don't think either of those things is true. Yeah, and th there is a medium to be brought. Like, it doesn't have to be a super technical broadcast or anything like that, but even something as simple as power plays, mm -hmm. it, it, it would be, I think, relatively easy to have a segment where you say, this is how the Leafs line up in a power play. Here are the main threats. Here are what they're looking for. Mm -hmm. Right? Here's what they're looking for as an offense. And that would go a long way to making the power play make more sense to a lot of viewers, I think. Yeah. And that doesn't have to be technical. That doesn't have to be like, okay, well, here's the bumper. And, you know, you don't need to use jargon for it. Mm -hmm. Power plays are pretty simple at their core. You're, you have one more guy than the other team. You're trying to find an open shot. Yeah. And almost every team seems to use the 1-3-1 one, one lately in some variations. Yes. So. so, like, I, th I think it, it would go a long way to making fans understand the game more while still being entertaining if things would just be explained a little bit more. Right. Right, without resorting as much to like complete cliches like momentum, the, the amount of times the broadcast will say momentum, or mm -hmm. the amount of times they'll say, you know, after anything happens, this could cause a momentum shift. And I mean, if everything can cause a momentum shift, does that does that not kind of <laughs> say something about the existence of momentum in a sense? Like it, it, it's clearly this very fleeting thing. If every single little item can cause a momentum shift the other way, right? Um, and you know. I'll, I'll say this. I'm sure there's some validity to it. You play hockey better if you're... Oh, yeah, of course. I, I yeah. think anyone who's played sports feel, yeah. like, at least innately feels the idea of momentum. I'm no different. Like There's sometimes where you feel good. You feel like things are going your way. Mm -hmm. And it is this sort of ineffable thing. But not everything is ascribable to momentum. And we shouldn't... It feels like momentum's like a big error term in how we understand the game. And hockey broadcasts seem to shove everything under that error term. Yeah, in terms of like, well, I guess that just must be what happened. How do we know they had momentum? Because eventually the play started going their way. Um, and we knew the play they started going their way probably because they had momentum. So it, it does end up in that kind of circular analysis. But also I think it's, it's easy to understand. That's a concept that everyone can identify with really quickly. And again, I'm not saying that there's nothing to it. Of course there is. I think we've all 
seen games where we're pretty confident things started to lean to one team and they started to smell blood in the water, um, to use another cliche. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it shouldn't be our, our default answer for everything, especially when there can be other things going on. Um, in the context of the Leafs sometimes, you know, I if you want to talk about why have they had playoff failures and people ascribe them to lack of compete and grit or sometimes inadequate defense and that's about it. And like, there's nothing to really narrow it down. Whereas you could say something useful like against Montreal... They ran into great goaltending, but also um, the Habs did a very good job walling off the slot. And the percentage of shots the Leafs got from that area got fewer and fewer as the series went on. Um, Just stuff like that. You know, just something that's a little bit deeper than these guys must not have wanted it as much as the other guys. Because I have Mm. to tell you, that's hard to judge, and I'm not sure how often it's really true. Think about how long... um... Sheldon Keefe has been the coach of the Leafs, and with a very, very definable offensive style. Mm-hmm. How many times on a broadcast have we heard them mention that we, we they they mention the Leafs defense likes to activate, mm-hmm. they like to move around. They never really mention it, what sort of movement they want to create in the offensive zone, mm-hmm. right? Um, or not not as much. I think at the start they did they they really mentioned the the third forward coming high to create space for the defenseman to to go down low. Mm-hmm. And may, maybe, like, you know, you don't want to point that out every single time because you have a lot of repeat viewers and, and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But I think emphasizing, even in broad strokes, what our team's trying to do without resorting as much to cliches mm-hmm. would go a long way. Especially if you can differentiate between teams. Yes. To, to give, I think that's something that is quite difficult for for anyone really but especially beginners getting into hockey is mm-hmm. how is how, how do the play styles of different teams how how do they differ mm-hmm. right we can see it in some ways some teams are very obviously trying to be fast and some teams are trying to like grind you down and have a more um small space game mm-hmm. to some extent but can, can you point out like how do, what are the patterns by which a team wants to create offense and it doesn't have to be explaining everything at first. Start, start with something small. When they're in the offensive zone, what does a team try to do to get offense? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I think that that would be really useful. You know, we talk about things like, oh, uh, Toronto's a bit more run and gun. The Islanders are a bit better defensively. Okay, okay so how? Why? And, and again, I'm not saying that I'm an expert on that. I remember there was a very, a very good article from Justin Bourne about what the Islanders actually do. In terms mm-hmm. of their commitment to winning puck battles, he also mentioned that there's a diversity of speed on the roster, so a lot of them tend to play slow, conservative, careful, and then a few of them can really burn you, like Matt Barzal. Um, stuff like that. You know, like, that would just be interesting, and it would make the game seem a little more varied. This is um, just sort of on a tangential note, but I've noticed that a lot of new fans on Twitter, like, they like the idea of ascribing a personality to teams, or to players, or to groups. And sometimes that gets into narrativizing, but also, if we want to engage people in the game, it's probably worth talking about what identities certain teams have. And, you know, the identity the Leafs have is they're, they're, they choked a lot because they're chokers, or something like that, but if we could just get a little more definition to it as to what they're doing or failing to do, I think that's a richer game. And it's a little bit more colorful, so... Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, 
Okay, this one is just me probably being annoyed. There seems to be this determination to describe certain players as having learned their lessons. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, anytime a guy like Tom Wilson or I remember Matt Cook or, I don't know, Brad Marchand goes a little while without getting a suspension, there's like, well, maybe he's changed his game. And there's just like a real hurry to say that. And Brad Marchand has started saying it himself. He, um, he sucker punched Tristan Jerry, the Penguins goaltender in the head. And one of the, th- he got suspended six games. And Brad Marchand said, these plays were not going to injure Jerry. No potential injury on that play. He was very well protected. The fact that it's six games is based on history, not on the play. Okay, first of all, <laughs> in the collective bargaining agreement, they explicitly say your history is relevant to the length of your suspension. So the implication that it's somehow illegitimate for them to do that is stupid. But also, Marchand's line keeps being, I'm just getting a bad rap despite not having done any of these things for a while. It's like, you keep doing them. That's why you keep having to make that explanation. He does rat stuff all the time and then claims he doesn't get enough credit for having stopped doing rat stuff. And it's the weirdest thing in the universe. Well, it's, he, he seems to really... I don't know. I, I, he would probably say the same thing about the whole licking thing. It's like, well, it's not that dangerous. Yeah. Right? And it's like, no, it's not. It's not like, dang, no one's going to die. But, like, it's fucking weird, and we just don't want the game to include that. And also, I mean, I would push back on the idea that, like, I mean, sucker punches can be really dangerous. Yeah, if you clip some guy the wrong way in the head, it's like, also, you, you can do all sorts are, of shit that's dangerous. Humans are startlingly, startlingly fragile. Yeah. Right? Um... <laughs> And, I mean, I, I I think people don't realize that in part because, like, movies show humans being, like, kind of indestructible. Yeah. Or, like, you know, Bruce Willis will get in a fight and, like, get knocked out and knock out five guys. And, like, in the real life, if you knock out five guys, like, three of them are dead. Mm-hmm. Right? Or, or like, in, in serious, like, long-term trauma. Yeah. Anyway, but whatever. You know, you could say even if it wasn't the most dangerous play, obviously it's not the same as an elbow coming 100 miles an hour. But, like, what are you doing? like just don't do this shit and you have a track record of having done this stuff and i don't understand this determination to say well maybe he's sort of changed no he's a very good player but he's a shithead he always Mm -hmm. has been i suspect he always will be and i feel that way about tom wilson too it's like well he stayed on the right side of the line until he doesn't you know and then every few months there's some sort of concussion on a play that he's involved in and everyone says, well, actually, he hadn't been doing it for a while. Okay, but this is, like, his tenth time. Yeah, it's like we should have pretty sticky memories when it comes to these yeah. guys. Like, it's, I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm very okay being kind of slow to say, oh, yeah, this person has changed. Like, it takes a lot. Yeah. Right? And I also get that in most cases, like, people like Tom Wilson and Brad Marshall are probably relatively normal people away from the, from the ice. Mm-hmm. But part of being in the NHL is the idea that, like, you are going to be under high-stress competitive situations, and it's, regardless of how normal you are away from the ice, it is not appropriate to, like, lose your head and see red and go ape shit on someone and make a terrible play just because it's in, like, the heat of the moment or whatever. Like, yes, I recognize that's harder. That's a high bar to live up to. You're in the NHL. It, yes, it's a high bar to live up to. You are one of the very best people in the world at what you do. Mm-hmm. So, yes, we have high expectations for you in terms of maintaining other people's safety. Yeah. 
Which, you know, at least don't do unnecessary dumb stuff like that. And I know there's a history in hockey of all sorts of nonsense, but still, we'd like to move away from it. And more to the point, um, part of the reason Marchand and Wilson and their ilk do stuff like this is because it's effective if it's not punished by the league with sufficient severity. You know, being a rat and a provocateur can be very useful for Brad Marchand and for Tom Wilson. You know, moving the game away from 5-on-5, the intimidation factor, provoking people into a critical power play at the wrong time, and, you know, sometimes just taking people out of the play by, you know, borderline means. You get away with it a lot of the time. All, all that stuff is, it works, unless there are actual consequences in terms of suspensions. And, you know, the league actually came down on this one. But it's because of that that we shouldn't be so quick to say, okay, it's fine, he's totally changed, because we're trying to disincentivize him from doing that. Mm -hmm. We shouldn't keep making excuses for why it might just happen once in a while, if we want to get this out of the game. And, you know, Brad Marchand's stuff is like, it's just, it doesn't add anything. It's just provocation stuff. And if it's actually dangerous, then, you know, get it out. Pull the hammer down on him. Mm. Um... Not enough penalty shots. This was one of yours. Oh yeah, it's just, okay. This is this one's probably fast, and it, it you know, it's, it's what it says on the tin. <laughs> Refs don't call enough penalty shots. Yeah. I, I feel like every time there's a, there's like a breakaway and someone gets impeded. There, there's probably some technical reason for why this is true, and I might just be misunderstanding the rules. Maybe that'd be helpful if broadcasts ever explain <laughs> things connecting to our previous point. That someone who I would I would say I'm like a reasonably intelligent fan who has watched hockey for a huge amount of time might not know exactly what the penalty shot rule is or like the situations under which that they occur. But my understanding is if someone takes a penalty and the person is on a breakaway, mm -hmm. it should be a penalty shot. Yeah. Maybe that's not the case. I'm operating under the assumption that that is the case. That's what, what video games taught me, right? <laughs> and, and when are they ever wrong? Never. But it seems like refs really do not um, apply that standard even when someone is on a breakaway. Like, they, they will do everything in their power to not call a penalty shot. And I don't really know why. Because penalty shots are fucking dope. Penalty shots are cool as hell. But the thing is, is that referees are terrified of the idea that they might decide the game. And penalty shots are a more dangerous play than a power play. And so if you give them the lesser option, they'll take the lesser option whenever they can. Because I think that a lot of referees still have that mentality of, the, you know, the best ref game has very few penalties in it. Right. So... Um the, according to Wikipedia, again, never wrong. <laughs> penalty shot is a penalty award when a team loses a clear scoring opportunity on a breakaway because of a foul committed by an opposing player. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe the, the, the point of distinction is that refs make is like oftentimes someone will get like slashed on a breakaway but still get like a kind of weak shot away. Mm -hmm. So then they're like, oh, I guess they didn't lose a clear scoring opportunity, but there is still a penalty. But I'm like, no, that's bullshit. Like, they, yeah. they, they, lost, they lost the opportunity. They didn't get, to do, they didn't get the, the true chance that their play merited. So call more penalty shots. And I'm like, obviously we don't want every single penalty to be, to be a penalty shot. And if there becomes 35 penalty shots a game, it obviously will stop to be, start to be less fun to watch a penalty shot. Mm -hmm. But... I don't think this is going to make the average of penalty shots per game like particularly high. It might be like one every f four or five games, not even. Yeah. It should just be like, there should be more than one penalty shot per team per season. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with that. And if you want to encourage people to not do, you know, the slash on the hands or whatever to defend it, again, cost benefit. Make it so that that play gets burned more often. 
and you'll see them start trying to defend in other ways. You know, they'll try and go blade on blade or whatever else. Well, and the other thing, this is this is not, this is just like an idea that I've I've heard before, and mm-hmm. I would like to see it instituted for those types of penalties. I think the team should get the choice whether they want the power play, or whether they want the penalty shot. Yeah. Because like I don't know if, um, if David Comp finds himself on a breakaway and gets awarded a penalty shot, I'll, I'll take the two minute power play. Yeah. <laughs> there are exceptions. Right, and and also, um, there's like if you're up a goal with three minutes left, mm-hmm. you w- might prefer the power play because it kills the game. Yeah, yeah. Right. So, yeah, I I think I think that that would that'd be good, and it 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 also I don't know I, I like giving teams more choices to make decisions because it gives them more it gives people like us more room to criticize them, which is fun. <laughs> yeah. Well, anytime you put in more stuff, it it adds. A certain amount of variety. You don't want to totally clutter up the game. And, you know, offside reviews, I think, have turned out to be an example of maybe that going too far. But, absolutely, if you give more choices, a little bit more strategy, it, it livens things up a little bit. Uh, especially in a game that can seem impenetrable. You know, that, speaking of analysis, it gives people something to cotton on to. It's like, okay, here was an event, here was a decision, let's talk about that. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that this would be great in several respects. And again, you know, I'm showing my hand here. People talk about, like, physical games and, you know, they want it to be gritty, tough. They want room for defense. I'm like, I honestly have no need for it to be a viable play to slash a guy across the hands on a breakaway because it's Mm -hmm. the lesser evil is just to take the slashing penalty. Like, I'm fine if that just doesn't work. And that's, you know, that's not the same as it being physical or competitive or anything like that. There's still potential for body checks and fights and everything else. But that kind of slow it down, uh, clutch and grab, or, you know, now clutch and grab and slash, defense, that was cut back after the 2005 lockout, and the game improved a lot. So another tr- step in that direction works for me. Yeah, I I fully agree with that. Oh. Um, do we want to move on to our, our last topic? <laughs> sure. This is the Arizona Coyotes. I'm trying to strike a balanced tone at first here because I want to say there's definitely a lot of uh, fan chauvinism from some Canadians who are like, oh, there shouldn't be hockey in the... Why am I doing a British accent? That's not how we sound. Anyway, <laughs> there shouldn't be hockey in the desert. Oh, there shouldn't, yeah. shouldn't be hockey down there, eh? Uh, yeah, there we go. Like a real hoser accent, eh? Um, yeah. I don't want to be like that. You can obviously have teams in Southern markets. It grows the game. There's a lot to recommend it. The Arizona thing, it's like, this has gotten dumb for a long time, man. At a certain point, I'm just like, can we not put this somewhere where it might have worked better? And I know that I don't blame the people of Arizona for not lining up around the block to see a Coyotes team that has basically done jack shit for a decade. But... Yeah, and I also, I also think there's a world where hockey in Arizona succeeds. Mm-hmm. I don't think I don't think Tampa is magically more amenable to hockey than Arizona is, but Tampa has had good ownership, mm-hmm. and they they built a good team. And when you build a good team, people will watch, and that will build long term fans. Yeah, winning is the first step. I mean, look at Vegas, also mm-hmm. in the desert, has done spectacularly because they've had a competitive team from the jump. Um, and again, it's not like it was realistic to expect Arizona to do that coming in, but you know, now it's been 25 years. Right. And like the, the biggest thing is there hasn't, 
there's been about a bajillion owners, and not a single NI owner has been like kind of competent in Arizona. Mm-hmm. Right, and I'm not even like necessarily if they want to stick in Arizona. Okay, sure, I guess, but like it's regardless of that, like the NHL deserves criticism for how they've just been completely unable to find any set of owners in Arizona who are not just like fucking terrible. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, this is this is like a clown show of an organization. It, it's it's a bad sign if everyone who deals with their team is like, yeah, you better pay me up front, by the way. Yeah, like, it's very shady at this point in terms of just their standard business practice, which is don't pay on time and dare them to sue you. Um, as it appears from that, from that article by Katie Strang, at any rate. So it's like... I just wish that they would operate like a real team, you know, that, that there wasn't a perpetual story going about how the Coyotes are a million miles away from even dreaming of com- being competitive. And now they're playing in an arena for college and its capacity is like 3,500 people or whatever it is. I think it's 5,000, mm-hmm. but uh, yeah. yeah, it's, it's just kind of like at some point, can we get it to operate like a real franchise? And if that can't happen in Arizona, maybe it is time to reconsider. Yeah, and I, I think Canadian fans also get annoyed that because there's no way, you know, there, there seems to be a separate set of rules for, for Arizona in particular, mm-hmm. where other teams would have gotten moved by this point, and Arizona hasn't. And there's like a sense of unfairness from aggrieved Nordiques fans, from aggrieved Jets fans, even though they got their team back to some extent. Mm-hmm. Um, so and I get that. I also get from the NHL's perspective, like okay, the upside in Arizona is like really big because it's it's an important market. Yada yada yada. You mm-hmm. know, if we don't have the Coyotes, we don't have Austin Matthews. Um, fair. Yeah. But at a certain point, like the rubber needs to hit the road. Yeah. And I honestly figured we might be getting there with this arena deal, where they're committing to a capacity that is a third of the next biggest team. Like that seems like it's kind of crazy. And. I think one of the problems, and I think other owners would probably not be happy with that, is like they're essentially foregoing any chance of being able to not be or like a complete revenue sharer. Yeah. Right? They're, they're, they're saying, okay, yeah, like we're not even trying at this point. Like they're, they're, there's, there's no way they can get to like solvency on their own in, in that arena. The, the potential just isn't high enough, really. Yeah. And you could say, look, Arizona has never made money, which is also kind yes. of telling. But now it's just they're not even going to come close. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like, it's like it's like a lack of ambition in some sense of like yeah. okay like you're not been you're not even tr- it's like there's like I think the idea would be like there's a good faith effort mm-hmm. to try and get to the point where every team is profitable yeah right which which is it's hard and I'm not I one thing that doesn't annoy me are like Canadian fans who are like oh you know why why do we have revenue sharing and like why do we prop up these bad franchises it's like well because having like having a decent amount of franchises makes you seem like a more legitimate league it is mm-hmm. useful to have a larger number of franchises. It does help in terms of growing the game, in terms of potential, in terms of overall league revenue. If there's revenue sharing, yeah, like it, it, it sucks. But like, it, it, it sucks at least at first. But you can turn a lot of these places into, you know, solvent teams, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but the idea is, they have to kind of get there, right? Or, or like, hopefully make efforts to get there. Mm-hmm. And it feels like the Coyotes are just going backwards on that score. I honestly thought that this university arena plan was uh, or you let us relocate thing. Like, mm-hmm. it, I just could not make myself believe that this was seriously the best option for a pro sports team that was going to stick around. But maybe that's the way it's going. So what do I know? 
I will also admit to a pocket sympathy for Quebec City getting its team back, even though they probably won't, because mm -hmm. <laughs> the NHL doesn't seem very interested in them. Um, I love Quebec City, and also it would be fun to have a team that pissed off the Habs. So, mm. <laughs> uh, but that said, it's just, it, it does feel a bit like, wow, Arizona hasn't seriously come close to operating like a real franchise in like, I guess 10 years, but at times it feels like ever. And it's like, is that ever going to change? Is that ever going to improve? Even if they just recommitted, they had an owner who said, I'm going to pay my bills on time and we're going to, you know, play in a real arena and we'll just try and make a real go of this again. It well, and, and apparently they got, that's apparently what was supposed to be the case for like when they, when they got this new current, this current owner, yeah. basically. Right. And it just hasn't worked out that way at all. Yeah. Um, and I think probably the pandemic was like probably not a great time in that sense. Because sure. uh, I think I think their owner made his money in like the casino business or something like that or something, something that was like very affected by maybe with hospitality, something really affected by the pandemic. Yeah, it's uh, Alex Mariello. And uh, mm -hmm. according to Wikipedia, which we're relying on for this podcast, banking, real estate, media, restaurants, food, casinos and professional sports. Yeah. Um, impressive diversity of interests. That's for sure. None, none of which are uh, particularly pandemic robust. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that may be a factor. Th that said, the, the thing about being too big uh, is kind of a tried and tested economic thing, right? Like, if you owe the bank $100, that's your problem. If you owe the bank $100 million, that's the bank's problem. Because, you know, you're of that scale where people have to keep doing business with you. But still, mm -hmm. like, this seems to be how they operate. Um, anyway, I guess that's just a long way of saying, like, can somebody do something with Arizona, please? Relocate <laughs> them, or at least just do something? Like, <laughs> make it incredible? Because at this point, it feels like it is a bit of an embarrassment for the NHL. Yeah, it's never, it's never good news. And also, like, I mean, they had that article from, from Katie Strang, which basically documented, like, how, not just how, you know, crappy they are in terms of revenue but like bad workplace environment and like you know everyone hates dealing with them because they just nickel and dime everything yeah it was not a sterling advertisement for either the franchise or the league of which it is a part so you would have to think that at some point is there not like a sort of uh, some momentum to use that term uh in the league to maybe have this stop happening. Like Gary Bettman has always been ardent in about keeping a team in Arizona, but it really feels like just pure ego at this point mm -hmm. where, where it's just like, they don't want to admit they failed. Um, I don't know. I guess we'll, we'll see how far it goes, but it's really, it has seemed pretty minor league for a long time. It really has. Um, okay. Was there anything else you wanted to rant about? No, I think I vented my spoon for one week. Okay, cool. That, that's good. Um, so you can catch all of mine and Fuleman's work at penchantanpuppets.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at RV and AT Fuleman. Thank you for listening to our Unhinged Rants. We will see you next time.